My number one album. Big shocker to me. Also folklore. Whoa. Are you ready to dive into all things Taylor Swift? Good for a Weekend is the ultimate podcast for any Swiftie. With new episodes dropping bi-monthly, as well as bonus episodes to give you real-time reactions to the latest rumors and news, it's your one-stop shop for all things T-Swift. We also love connecting with our fellow Weekenders, so be sure to connect with us on Instagram, Twitter, and or Discord to share all your Taylor thoughts. Good for a Weekend is available wherever you get your podcasts. I know. Well, just is that. Like, it's a perfect album. Hello and welcome to the Spark Parade, where I geek out with artists and entertainers about the single cultural work that's most inspired them. I'm Adam Ons at Spark Parade on all social media. Thanks for joining me for the second time this week. This is your special bonus year-end episode. Woohoo! I had a fantastic chat with director Michael Walker, whose brand new film Paint was just released on Wednesday. Mike and I talked about his love for comic legend Robert Crumb's era-defining Zap Comics number one. It's a lovely way to close out the year, if I do say so myself. And how fucking glad am I to say that this garbage year is coming to a close? Very. Very, very. So... Let's close things out with something uh, fun and informative, shall we? Here are some Mike facts. Michael Walker is a graduate of NYU's Tisch School of the Arts and the Stella Adler Conservatory for Acting in Los Angeles. His films include Chasing Sleep, which starred Jeff Daniels, and Price Check with Parker Posey. His brand new project, Paint, debuted as a TV pilot in 2018 at Sundance, but has since evolved into a film. Uh, quick Zap Comics number one facts. Zap Comics number one was the first published issue of Zap Comics, which started as a showcase for artist Robert Crumb. It was labeled Fair Warning for Adult Intellectuals Only, and it featured the publishing debut of Robert Crumb's much bootlegged Keep on Truckin' imagery, an early appearance of unreliable holy man Mr. Natural, and his neurotic disciple Flaky Foont. And the first of innumerable self-caricatures in which Robert Crumb calls himself a raving lunatic and one of the world's last great medieval thinkers. Mike and I also dig into Robert Crumb's life and career, so you're going to get a full, well-rounded picture here. Sounds good, right? So, without further ado, here comes my chat with Michael Walker about Zap Comics number one. So, usually the first uh, question that I ask is, do you remember discovering that uh, that book for the first time? Uh, yeah, I remember. Uh, I don't. I guess I don't. I was pretty young. I remember my dad had some of these around. My parents were divorced, and I was at my dad's house, and he had a bunch of Zap comics that my brother had. My brother was a lot older than me. You know, he was he died when he was eighteen. My brother and I was three. So, oh, I'm and sorry. so when I was maybe eight or nine, my dad gave them to me. I don't think he knew what they were, but it was around the time I was getting like I, I lived in a sort of hippie household, I guess. So I had. Uh, Someone got me a subscription to National Lampoon and uh, and these underground comics, and there was the Furry Freak Brothers. I don't know if you know them, mm-hmm. but uh, and Zap Comics, and uh, so it was, it was pretty early, like nine or ten. I started to read these things, and I really loved them even then. Uh, and I just sort of grew up with them, and you know, he was always putting things out, so there was always new ones to get. Yeah, and you know, like I would go to comic stores and I would look for the next Robert Crumb comic. I mean, the Zap Number One is way before my time. It came out in like 1968, and I was born mm-hmm. in 67. So, 
Right. But and if I probably if I really wanted something more influential, I probably could have gone for like his weirdo comics or something like that. But mm-hmm. I couldn't find those. Yeah. And this is like, you know, the seed from which all of his stuff grew and yeah. uh, not just his stuff, but, you know, it uh, paved the way for a whole new world in comics. Yeah, definitely. But, you know, um, like the stuff he did in the 80s would have been more, you know, when I was at college or something like that. And I would have been a little bit more aware of the world around me and and where it sort of fit in. And also, I mean, it was and, and his stuff was a little more current with those times, too, at the time I mean, these things are current in 1968, but, you know, which is a little alien to me. But Yeah, yeah. But also, I, I think seeing the evolution of his style, um, he's such a he's such an amazing artist that like it, it also is not just one style. I think that sort of, I guess, signature version of what he does sprung out of those early Zap comics, but also morphed into a million different things. And then he still would occasionally do these more traditional, like almost portraits, you know, constantly sketching pictures of people. Um, I just rewatched the uh, Terry Zwigoff uh, documentary. Yeah, I I hadn't seen for a really long time. And just seeing him, you know, hanging out in a coffee shop, just like, just drawing all everybody time. around him right yeah. was it there's a scene in that where he uh where he f- freeze frames the uh, fly girls to get the you know he, he says like he drew some women in different positions and he said he got that from freeze framing the vhs on his uh watching fly girls right right so it's uh yeah he just obviously just sees everything it draws out he just draws all the time I and mean, he's, he's the actual drawing is just incredible even back then it's just the detail and I don't yeah. know if you've ever, even compared to the other comics, the other uh, artists in, in Zap, you know, they don't have that same kind of, I don't know what you call it, precision. Right, right. And I think in addition to the artistry, the subject matter kind of, you know, he he sort of danced on the uh, the borderline of being part of the counterculture, but it was like, people who were, you know, hanging out on hate street, who were hippies, who appreciated his work, but he didn't feel like he was a part of that and kind of rejected that. Um, So there's like this push pull, uh, you know, feeling like he, you know, doing drugs and um, kind of having his art and his, uh, I guess, for want of a better turn of phrase, consciousness expanded by, you know, doing drugs. Um, and then uh, being on the kind of periphery of all of the stuff that was happening in San Francisco and all of that stuff kind of um, uh, being the backdrop for, you know, starting this massive career that was hugely influential across all of comics and I mean artists of, of all different kinds as well. Yeah. I think like you said, like he didn't, even though he was part of that whole culture, I think he hated them too. He hated, (laughs) or he just saw the hypocrisy of whatever he saw his hip hop, you know, whatever the hypocrisy he saw in them and and whatever was going on around him. And, you know, he's, he'd see all these things firsthand. I remember there were some comics once he did about a commune and he's, you know, just to get the different point of view on it, you know, they, they would come into the sort of, paradise of commune you know, with these ideals 
what a, what a commune was going to be, that everybody was going to do work equal, and, and basically all the men would sit around doing nothing, and all the women would get mad. Right. <laughs> and, and you know, in those in his comics, they're so funny. Yeah, those situations, yeah. but yeah. So, do you remember like? Um, was his stuff kind of a constant for you through your whole life or did you like read him as a kid and then come back to them, you know, later on in your life or. I think he was pretty much a constant. I mean, I can't remember not reading him really. I was in, in high school, like I grew up in Miami and then, uh, hmm. and I ended up in, in England for, for, uh, high school. And, All right. Uh, Whereabouts? I went to like a boarding school in, in Somerset. Okay. I, I'm a dual citizen. I, I lived in London for 12 years. So. Okay. <laughs> yeah. well, well, my mother lived in London. So I would go, to, right. when I went to London, I would go to the comic stores and see what new was, what was new from Robert Crumb. And, uh, you know, it's, it was harder to get over there a little bit. They had a forbidden planet. And <laughs> I don't know. You know, it's, it's basically, I've been around. I mean, I, it's always not just him. I mean, some of the other comic books too, all the underground stuff. And it changed a little in the, in the, late 80s and early 90s there were some other people like peter bag and things like that which were, who were really great mm-hmm. um but it was always i mean he's always just been the best it's just his he just has such a i don't know such a view of the world and such a his old his own angst and his own sexual perversions and his own just the way he sees the world you know is uh just he tells he tells things the way they are even if they're not politically correct i mean nothing he does is very politically correct yeah <laughs> you know which is yeah. one of the great things about him i don't think there's anybody that i can think of out right now that has that same sort of sensibility about you know that it's not even rebelliousness it's just he puts it out there and it's disturbing some of the i mean if you read some of the if you read this whole thing there's things in there that would definitely provoke a bigger response today than they probably did back in 1968 right yeah but I think that uh, kind of confessional uh, or I, I guess it, it's more just a lack of self-censorship. He's, you know, everything inside of him just comes out on the page. And I don't think that that was necessarily unusual for artists, you know, on, on the whole, but definitely very unusual for comic books. And um, it kind of opened the door for this new phase in comics where it wasn't just about like, you know, Sunday comic strips or superheroes. It's like telling sometimes, you know, uh, exaggerated stories from his real life, sometimes just made up crazy stuff that he is, you know, pull, pulling out of, uh, the, what he sees around him in the world. Um, and the progression on from that into, you know, people like Adrian Tomine or, or, or people like that today who still have, you know, maybe a, a more uh, reserved, refined <laughs> version right. of that. They're not just like having this brain dump onto the pages. Right. Um, but it was uh, it's such a, an, a unique style and such a um, distinct style as well. Yeah. Well, it's such a lowbrow style, too, especially at the time. I mean, comic books were. I don't think anybody considered them art in 1968. Right. I mean, they, they just weren't. And uh, and I don't know how appreciated he was at the time, especially doing the stuff he did. But, you know, I know, I know he was appreciated as a comic book artist, but I don't know, you know, I mean, he was selling his comic books in head shops. They didn't even sell them in comic book stores at the time. So, right. you know, it's, uh, 
and that I mean it's it's funny that you know later on he became embraced by the art world and yeah. and he's definitely influential but you know at the time he was not I don't think he was even really looking for that right yeah and I think he is kind of baffled I don't know baffled um but he gets a kick out of it that it's like you know when he's starting out uh the reaction also i mean the, the world has progressed in terms of the kinds of uh artwork that's tolerated and what things are censored so like having super sexual situations in comic books now isn't like this totally radical thing that nobody had ever seen before but at the time it was like you know he was getting censored in um in you know, couldn't get his stuff in bookshops. People were up in arms about the kinds of stuff that he was. Um, yeah, but I would think, uh, I mean, in a way, he was coming out of, you know, the 50s. Right. And it was very conservative times. But in a lot of ways, it's just, it's even more conservative now. Like I said, I don't really see the same kind of, I don't know, this kind of, this sort of, I don't know, I don't even know what you call it. It's not, it's reactionary or, or you know, it's, it's, like you said, it's it's perverted stuff or some things that, that would definitely grate people. And it's not out there necessarily to provoke a reaction. It's just there to say this is the way the world is. And it's stupid that you're not talking about it. You know, you know he uh, really just saw the world in a certain way and wasn't afraid to put it out there. And like mm-hmm. you said, his own insecurities. I mean, I don't think at the time anybody in comic books was putting out their sort of sexual perversions. Mm-hmm. Um and he did some of this stuff to be radical, to be fair. It's like, you know, he was going against the comic book code, right. which I guess was just, you know, no police couldn't behave in a certain way. And, uh, you know, and, which is current now, I guess, too. It's, now they're, they're now we're dealing with the, uh, the results of that, that the police have always been treated like heroes. And, you know, they're not, they don't go around just beating people up sometimes for no reason. I mean, in his comic books, if you're black, you get hit, beat on the head with a, uh, by a cop so or a hippie yeah and that was yeah. the world around him and it's the you know yeah and uh, i mean i think as as divisive as the um you know the the reaction is kind of split in terms of the way he treats race in terms of the way he treats women generally um but to him it's exactly what you said it's not like he is, is del- being deliberately provocative it is just like he's vomiting up all of his thoughts he's not uh taking the time to worry about how he's going to be perceived or um you know whether he's going to upset people or whatever it's just like this is what's inside my brain take it or leave it (laughs) yeah and it's hard it's i mean it's i i don't i mean i i don't think i could do that and uh as much as i'd want to do that you know it's something in, in a way, I mean, I really envy it, but, you know, and also it's like, you have to have the sort of interesting background to do that too, which he has, you know, and right. he has this strange perversion with big butted women or thick legged women. Or, and, uh, I'm sure he doesn't have it anymore. He's like 90, but you know, it's, uh, it's, it's, uh, it's a certain thing to put those things out there like that. It's, uh, you know, not worry about what people think, you know, right. I mean, look at and- what happened to Louis CK. Yeah, yeah, know, yeah. And he right away, you know, and it was, you know, it's, a, you know, it's something that's a very embarrassing thing happened to him, and he was, whatever. His reaction to it was was different than 
I think what Robert Crumbs would have been, but then I guess he's a different kind of entertainer. So. Yeah. And also, you know, somebody like Louis C.K. who is doing these things privately, not necessarily incorporating them explicitly into his work, whereas Robert Crumbs just like, here it is. And it, it, like that, that stuff coming out on the page and uh, like, again, having just watched this documentary, seeing him wanting to get piggyback rides from women constantly and just right. having like his, and it's in his, his comics too it's so right funny. right just like all of his kinks right there for everybody to see and there's no question about what's going on and i think you know in a lot of other artwork mm-hmm. people try to kind of gauge what the artist is thinking when they're uh creating their work and this is like there's there's no question you don't need to his his whole life is just put there yeah. Uh, for everyone but it's see. true it's like i mean it's must be something of the times too i mean he couldn't have gotten away with that in the last five years doing that stuff if he was the same person i mean louis ck to be fair did go up on stage and talk about his masturbation and all these things that he did you know before he was got in trouble for doing it and you know obviously what he got in trouble for wasn't the act of doing it as much as that he was using his position to do it but hmm. you know the uh it's just a different world that we're in right now and it's uh that people you know i don't i don't don't know it's 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 tough i mean you know in in the worlds that he was in or in the 70s rock stars were van halen had to you know they they would have their bouncers pick the hottest girls in the front and bring them up you know backstage so and they got a little telling too about that but nobody did anything about it you know now i don't think i don't think that happens but it doesn't mean that that sort of teen libido isn't still out there that's (laughs) um just going back to like uh, the his actual artistry as well. Um, the in in some ways he just feels like a savant. It's like wa- watching him draw, seeing how quickly and easily all of this stuff comes out of him. That uh, you know, watching him trying to uh, coach his son on the things that he's no, I love getting that right and wrong. That. Right. Well, what he says is like because his son's a great drawer. It's 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 something to do with art too, which I've you know I, I learned a lot about when I was doing the movie, uh, which is that you know anybody. This is a quote from one of the books I read. I don't remember which one, but you know anyone coming out of art school can basically paint decently or or well, but it takes something else to be an artist to be something successful and something like that. And when he's talking to his son, when Robert comes talking to his son in that movie, and he says like you know it's really good, but you're missing certain character or something you know they, that's because they're drawing like some a woman or something just he gets like in his drawing you can see there's like something about her that comes out her personality or her emotion or something about her he captures so much more about it than her son than his son right who just you know it does a great you know uh, likeness of her but just misses that and it's so sad in that movie too and the son just looks at the page like, oh, right, what, right. what am i missing yeah and then later on saying like oh sometimes i try to give my dad a hug or just shake his hand and he won't have any of it he's, he's yeah. not that kind of guy yeah um but yeah that i think um in that yeah yeah uh in that moment as well uh it's it's a little bit about having a point of view putting you know putting your perspective into your work and saying even though this is a photograph of someone i've never met 
my interpretation of the emotion on her face is this, and I'm putting it into the drawing that I'm doing of her and, uh, you know, kind of trying to say to the son that it's like, he has done a very good likeness, but the perspective is lacking and that he, you know, the emotional content isn't necessarily coming through because he's, he might not be thinking about that part of it. It's like the technical stuff is all there, but, um, there has to be that, that, spark the artistry as you said yeah there has to be and also the ideas of it i mean just even to see that and have an emotional you know view of the world and and, you know it's part of being an artist yeah yeah and he definitely has a, a very strong viewpoints on a lot of things i just uh you know listening to him talking about music and stuff and just kind of even you know the 30, 25, 30 years ago, kind of shaking his hands at those noisy kids with their loud rock and roll and really wanting to just have, you know, blues and um, older styles of music, like having a very specific uh, niche that he's into when it comes to the, the art that other people have created. It was funny, like he, him and his brother, you know, the, the one that ended up, I mean, I guess he killed himself after the movie was made, but it's not, he ended up killing himself. But the, uh, they, he, he was always talking about how the, he, he would just reread old books all the time. And, and Robert Crumb was into this old music and they just sort of have this idealized version of the past, you know, which I think a lot of people do, but, you know, he's, he just hears something in that music or the, that the books, the older books, I think he was reading like Victorian age books and things mm-hmm. that, he, you know, they were just, so much better and they never got any better so <laughs> right right i just think pop anything that was coming out currently was just awful yeah so he really didn't fit in and i mean robert probably just didn't fit in at all with the world around him and like like you were saying even in hate ashbury you know he liked some of the stuff around him but you know he didn't want to really be part of that group he didn't fit in he did he was the sort of like ugly little guy who was you know nervous and and the, the real hippies were these big personalities and I don't think he liked that particularly. Right. And I, I find that uh, contradiction really interesting that it's like somebody who kind of railed against modernity and was, you know, the way he dressed was very kind of conservative and old fashioned. And he's just kind of a uh, not an introvert, but just geeky and um, liked, you know, old older styles of music and was really set in his ways in that respect, but also was somebody who totally exploded the notion of what comics were and was really forward thinking or at least, you know, paved the way for, uh, you know, this huge advancements in, in the artistry of comics. Yeah, it's um, funny. It's like, you know, his tastes and things were so out of whack with the things that are going on around him and the other people. And it's like, I can't imagine, like, you know, I was into, I was into, um, old Calypso music for a little while. And, uh, you know, the only people who knew anything about it were like, Nat, you know, the Trinidadian nannies on the street. Other than that, I had no information. I mean, there was the internet, I found a little bit, and I would buy these records just sort of blindly, and I loved them. But I had nobody to talk to them about. I mean, I could have kept, if I had really gotten into that, like he was into these old blues, it's hard to find that group that you're, you know, that's, I would have no friends, basically. And it's like, he, he didn't care. He, he liked what he liked. He didn't really care what you thought. And he didn't want to hear what you had really to offer. This is what he liked. And then, you know, he found other people who listened to those blues records, I'm sure, and they traded them. 
but yeah. I don't think, uh, and I think it's the same with what you're saying about him being able to put himself on the page. And it's just, he didn't really have the concern of what people thought, you know, what people think. And, uh, you know, and that and he was able to, to, to do that. And I guess, you know, a lot of artists don't, I mean, I doubt Jeff Koons really cares what people think, but you know, <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think he's doing fine. Yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, I think, uh, but I mean, he's a different kind of not caring what people think. I guess. Right. Right. Absolutely. Um, but just having that ability to create stuff and he, I, I think it's not just, it's not just not caring what other people think. It's that he is happy with it. Yeah. And he looks back through his work and is like, he's satisfied with what he's done and he is his more most important customer mm -hmm. and he knows that he has a big enough fan base um although you know being a little disparaging about them kind of drawing them as these greasy little weirdos who uh, can't relate to anybody um but uh yeah just uh saying that being satisfied with his work himself well, i think he's happy that enough. he can make a living doing what he likes doing and he just doesn't have, yeah i mean i think he had that job at the greeting card company <laughs> right which you know he just thought was the worst job ever he couldn't imagine anything worse than that and really it doesn't seem like that bad as a job you know but yeah. he just couldn't believe the stuff that they would do and how bad everything was and you know imagine him working anywhere <laughs> yeah yeah imagine him like you know if he was a tv producer or something like that just he would just think everything was awful and you know, it's yeah. hard. It's hard to like live in the world and see all the mediocrity around you, and you really can't stand it. And you, you know, and you have to live in and actually make money doing that stuff. Yeah, and I think uh, the way that he responds to the world around him is to interpret it himself. Yeah. And you know, um, having this kind of disdain for a lot of what's happening in the world around him, but also being this keen observationalist and wanting to commit his version of reality to the page so that it's you know that that's that's the reality that he cares about he's uh uh yeah quite quite a character also seeing like his relationship to his brothers and if you've just been introduced to him on his own and seen him being interviewed you think he's you know kind of a weird guy he's got yeah, he's quirky you have no idea right yeah <laughs> Um, and, you know, there's a lot of mental illness in his family, a lot of other illnesses, uh, the just, you know, uh, child abuse, all of these uh, horrific things happening on uh, as well. Yeah. But um, having that kind of context, seeing the family that he came from um, does explain a lot. <laughs> it does, you know, but it's not. I, yeah, it explains a lot. Yes. Yeah. yeah. But it doesn't explain his perception of the world. And, like, you know, it is such a, like, a wide, epic perception of the world. It doesn't just, you know, it, it, it's not the small world of dramas or something like that. He has a view of, of the way the world is. It's, you know, society collapsing and, uh, you know, changing into this horrible place, you know, going from a nice, nice, you know, pe place where people talk to each other to, like, this horrible place that it is now, you know, it's like... He, I mean, he has, not everybody sees the world like that, but, you know, he does. And it's, it's not a, I mean, even the thoughts he has with like, I mean, in this, there's a, you know, the, there's always a running comic with him was Flaky Foont and uh, with Mr. Natural. Mm -hmm. And, 
you know, it was fun rereading this because I, I, my, my memory is that Mr. Natural used to just walk all over flaky foods. And I feel like in, this, in these early ones, he had a little bit more of a, uh, a little more spine flaky food did. But, um, but, and, you know, the things they talk about are these, you know, they're big problems that people wrestle with in their minds, you know, it's like, you know, and Mr. Natural seems to have it all sorted out, but, you know, obviously he's a made up character. He's a sort of head of a flaky food. And, you know, it's just, it's, a, they're not, they're not small stories. You know what I mean? They're, every, everything in there is, has these huge ideas. And, uh, mm -hmm. it's, it's amazing really. And yeah. not just, you know, the inner, inner life of these people too. Yeah. And uh, I see in his work a lot of, um, this kind of taking his internal monologue and turning it into a dialogue for, you know, a, a discussion for his characters. Mm -hmm. Um, and I think that's a, an interesting way to express your thoughts as well as to like, uh, you know, there are lots of little situations in the, in the books that are, situations that everybody can relate to as things that they might have thought to themselves but not necessarily expressed to other people and he's just like not only do i express them to other people but my characters are going to have conversations about them with each other <laughs> yeah and go places where you're not you know comfortable talking about them sometimes right but you know they're they're, they're great stories and they yeah. like i said it's like i just i love the way he takes something you know i mean like mr white man or white man i guess he calls him you mm. know he's 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 another character that goes on forever. And he's just this white man who's riddled with white guilt and, and doesn't really know what to make of his sexual perversions and his society's all around him. And he's just terrified of the world around him and he's putting on this show and it's, you know, it's a possible act that he's never going to be able to be happy with or keep up with. So it's just, uh, I don't know. It's amazing. It's just, it's just like the small and it's just a little comic that can say so much about the world that you're in and, and, and also about him and about and how it touches you. So. Yeah. Yeah. Quite, uh, quite multidimensional stuff. Mm -hmm. Um, I feel pretty good. You, uh, you feel satisfied? Yeah. If you, you know. Thank you so much. This was, this was really fun. Take care. All right. Bye-bye. Thanks again to Mike for chatting with me. His new film, Paint, is out now on demand on all of your favorite streaming services. Okay, one last inspirational recommendation from me before we close out the year. Why not? Britt Bennett's novel, The Vanishing Half, is so fucking good. Uh, it's about identical twin light-skinned black sisters Desiree and Stella who run away from their small hometown to New Orleans and Stella disappears shortly thereafter. There is so, so, so much more to this book than that, but I think you should know as little as possible before reading it. Just let the story unfold on its own, because it's so, so good. It's really brilliantly written, and you should check it out over the holiday break. Not least because I'm going to be talking about it in an upcoming episode with some uh, amazing guests in the new year. So you should read it now. And then you can be informed ahead of the episode's release. It's a win-win for everyone. All right, that's it. Thank you so much for listening this year. I uh, hope this show has helped you through in some small way. I've got a ton of great stuff lined up for you next year. So start getting excited now. Uh, have a fantastic break. And I'll be back in January with lots more great episodes. Take care of yourself. Be good. And until next time, bye.